Um, and I've done that myself. So let's go ahead and uh, open in prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this glorious day that you've given us. Thank you that we can gather in freedom to worship you. We pray, Lord, during this time of um, just anxiousness in our society and in our nation and in our culture, that you would calm our spirits, that you would help us to focus on your timeless truths and the wonders of your creation. Help us, Lord, to hear from your spirit today. Help us to take something away this morning that just brings us closer to you and what matters most to you. Help us to be selfless in all of our ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. You're probably all familiar with some of uh, the passages that I'm going to quickly quote from right here. Beginning with the book of James, who is written by, most believe, the half-brother of Jesus. In chapter 4 of his epistle, he warned us not to confidently or pridefully speak about what we intend to do in the future. Here's what he said. Come now, you who... Say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Elsewhere in scripture, we read, we are like the grass that withers in the heat of the day or like a flower that flourishes in the field, but the wind passes over it and it is gone. Again, in the Psalms we read, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow, and the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone and we fly away. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back before our own appointed time. We all come from dust, and to dust we shall return. Now, most of us avoid thinking about our own mortality. We constantly seek to delay this inevitable aging process, or we distract ourselves from thinking about our inevitable destiny. We exercise, we take vitamins, we watch our diets to prolong our life. We keep busy to avoid dwelling on what awaits us all. But the Bible does clearly teach that it's a good thing to think about these warnings, or otherwise they wouldn't be provided, for this life is short and eternity is infinitely longer, and that is the destiny of all of us. Over the past 18 months, I've thought a whole lot more about some of this, and I've understood better what the Bible teaches us about it, about this concept of the brevity of life. Since I lost Robin in April of 2020, I found it really hard to believe that 40 years passed since we were married, and that was in 1981. Robin was indeed that flower that flourished, and I'm grateful for every one of those years that we had together. But the winds of time passed over us and her appointed time did come, and the Lord took her home, and the same will happen to every one of us. 
Now, that's an intro to the parable that we're really going to talk about today. And I'm going to be talking about this parable where Jesus warned a man, a rich man, and these warnings are relevant to the behavior and attitudes of that rich man in this parable. It's a very practical teaching. He built bigger barns, you're probably familiar with it, and he was criticized greatly for the way that he managed the great prosperity that he had over that period of time when his crops produced abundantly. He was criticized because he was not rich towards God. We're going to read the parable. If you'd like to follow along with the parable that I've chosen today, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Again, Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Well, most of you are not farmers, maybe a few of you are, and you don't have a big barn, and you didn't need to build a bigger barn no matter what. So the relevance of the parable uh, may not be direct, but it's pretty easy to understand. But because it is not directly relevant to most, as I prepared for this, I searched for something that we might consider to be more of a modern story or a modern parable that tells kind of the same thing. And I did identify something that I'd like to read and set the stage. So we have the parable of Jesus and we have this modern story which is uh, it's re relevant perhaps to more of us. Here it is. A husband and wife, and I will call them Joe and Fran, these are not the real names, had a decades-long shared desire to retire early and live out their lives in an oceanfront beach house in North Carolina. They planned, they traveled to North Carolina numerous times so they could find that perfect house and they purchased one fairly early in their marriage that met all their hopes and dreams. They bought a million dollar home which required an intense focus of efforts and it consumed a great deal of their available income. With little money left each month after covering the cost associated with their two homes, they gave a meager amount to the church but put most of the rest into a 401k to provide more funds when they reached their retirement age, that early retirement they hoped for of 62. With only two years to go, all the sacrifice appeared to be paying off and their financial position looked good. They were counting the days to the time they had dreamed about, 
Then something unexpected occurred. One early evening, Fran was out buying groceries, and as always, she returned home and entered the door from the garage into their kitchen. She called to Joe, who always came to help her bring the bags in from the car, but he didn't answer, so she called again. She knew he was home, so she went looking for him. She entered their bedroom and looked into the master bath. There she saw Joe lying dead on the floor from a massive heart attack. Fran was devastated by the loss of her husband and their dream of a happy retirement together. Everything she and Joe had focused upon for 30 years and all of her hopes became meaningless in an instant. After a time, Fran sold their North Carolina home, for without Joe it would bring nothing but heartache. God called the rich man who built bigger barns a fool. Would he similarly have considered Joe and Fran fools? From what we know of the story, Joe and Fran and their intense focus on self-gratification other than things of God, from that we probably would conclude that yes, they might also be characterized as fools. Going back to the parable, we see the rich man using language that demonstrates his strong self-centered attitude. He referred to my crops, my barn, my grain, my goods. He saw everything with an attitude of pride and all with respect to his own pleasure. He concluded he had ample wealth to ensure a good life all the way to the end, a time when he could relax, eat, drink, be merry. To him, all of life was about pleasure for himself. Similarly, Joe and Fran sacrificed and saved for many years so they too could relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And I can relate. I like the beach, in fact, North Carolina beach. They wanted to be able to enjoy that ocean beauty, the views, the sounds, the smells, those relaxing mornings. That's what they lived for. I can truly relate. But like the rich man, Joe and Fran had laid up nearly all of their treasure and all of their material blessings that God had given them for here on earth, for things to experience here on earth. They devoted nearly everything to satisfy these worldly desires and dreams. There was really no indication of either the rich man or Joe and Fran that they were rich towards God. We're all familiar with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So while the earthly treasures of the rich man, Joe and Fran, did not get eaten by moths or rust, or they weren't stolen, they disappeared in a different way, at least with respect to how the person who was given the responsibility to manage these things, uh, how they could have used them properly. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he wrote, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. While Fran did not die, the beach house became meaningless, an object of much grief, and she no longer desired it. She effectively lost it. The money gained from its sale probably became meaningless as well. So, 
When God calls someone a fool, I want to come back to that and talk about that. What does he mean when he calls someone a fool? Well, God's view of a fool is different and much more severe than our modern version of a fool, which generally just means a person who makes stupid choices or lacks common sense. That's the way most of us think of a fool, but to God, it is a much harsher view And it goes much further than simply being guilty of a host of sins related to poor choices. Let me share a couple scriptures that uh, talk about what God sees when 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 he calls someone a fool, what he believes and thinks. Most importantly, we can look at Psalm 14.1 that says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And that 14th Psalm goes on to say a few other things. It says that foolishness in his God's eyes leads to corruption of character, abominable evil deeds, a lack of understanding and knowledge, and a state of terror. For those who are fools do not have the Lord as a place of rest or refuge when trials arise. Isaiah 32 talks about what a fool is in God's eyes. A fool speaks folly, meaning anything really that contradicts God's words. The fool speaks falsehood regarding God and his ways. He speaks lying words to harm the poor and the needy and neglects the needs of the hungry and thirsty. So when Jesus called the rich man a fool, he undoubtedly had these ideas in mind. The rich man's focus on self-pleasure dominated his world view and his thinking. God was far from his mind, and there's no indication that the rich man was thankful to God for any of the prosperity he had experienced. There's no indication that he intended to give a portion of his wealth to the Lord. He planned to hoard everything to ensure his own needs and desires would be met for the rest of his life. At best, he was blind to the needs of others, so caught up in his own desires and plans and seeking after pleasure, that he was just blind to those needs. But, but it is possible that he just had hardened his heart, and he did see those needs. Well, Jesus called on us to consider the needs of others above our own, and he commanded us, actually, to deny ourselves daily those things that we want, those things we lust after, to deny them daily. And the rich fool had the opposite view. God and his word is far from the heart and mind of a fool. I'll repeat that. God and his word is far from the heart and mind of a fool. Now, I need to step back for a moment and say a few words about what the Bible says about acting prudently to save some of the hard-earned material blessings that we receive, whether it's money or crops or whatever that may be, while still fail, by still not failing to be rich towards God. Both are possible. We've heard the saying, we've all heard it, and there's probably more than one saying that relates to this, but the wise would save for a rainy day. That will most surely come upon every one of us. We don't know when, but we should expect someday to have needs. So saving makes sense. 
We won't find those precise words about saving for a rainy day in the Bible, but we can say with some confidence that this does align with Bible teaching on prudent living. We all know that emergencies will come. We can't predict when that is going to happen. But there are multiple scripture passages that teach us to plan for those times so we can provide not only for ourselves, but for others, including family, friends, others who have needs. So it makes some sense to save some. And recognizing this general principle that we think we see throughout scripture, trustworthy Christian counselors or teachers tell us we should plan for emergencies. And prudent living includes making provisions for the future. Especially as we grow older, that may be necessary. Our income may drop, our needs may become greater, and so some saving is prudent. That's actually being a good steward of what God has given us. Some Christian teachers will point to the example of Joseph in Egypt where God gave him uh, a dream that pointed out to him that saving during a time of hardship was appropriate. I, I mean, during a time of abundance was appropriate in order to be prepared for the time of hardship that was going to come. God did give him the guidance, but yet the principle is established as being a, a reasonable, prudent principle. Others turn to the example of God's smallest creatures, and we can look in Proverbs 6 where we see, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. We can even find other passages, I'm not going to quote them all, that relate some to prudent savings, but it's pretty clear that all of the teachings that we would see in Scripture about saving is not for self-pleasure. It is to address some other responsibility that we may have, and that could include towards ourself, but it isn't just towards self-pleasure. This kind of savings is also aligned with the overall biblical command to love one another. We are to save not just for ourselves, but we are to save so that we can help others. It's the opposite of saving as the rich man did, or even as Joe and Fran did in the investments in their home, which related to self-indulgence and that desire to eat, drink, and be merry. Another brief sidetrack that I want to make before we get into the practicals of, of what it looks like to be rich towards God relates to whether this parable has anything at all to say about the concept of salvation. And I would say this wasn't Jesus' purpose in talking or presenting this parable to teach about salvation, but I would say there are some things that we can infer from what we see here that shed some light on whether a person who behaves selfishly is saved or not. Okay, so I want to present just a little bit here about what we might be able to infer from this. We already talked about the meaning of a fool and his very direct statement, God's very direct statement that a fool says there is no God. 
If a fool doesn't believe there's a God, that seems to be a sure indication of a lack of salvation. If he doesn't believe God exists, he certainly is not going to be thankful for him for anything. And true worship would be foolishness from his worldly point of view. Now, a fool may not be stupid from a worldly perspective. In fact, he may be perceived as shrewd and wise, but he might be a fool in God's eyes anyway because he's devoid of spiritual knowledge that may relate to salvation. So what else about how this might relate to salvation? A few points and, and then I'll get to something Jesus said. The rich man in this parable certainly loved money and worldly pleasures that it could provide. Paul wrote to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he adds, and here's, here's a key point, he adds to that. We may not remember this as much as we remember, remember the fact that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But then he says, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Now, we believe in the idea of eternal security, salvation. You know, once you're saved, always saved. You're not going to lose it. Can't be plucked from the hand of God. But what is this saying, that some have wandered away from the faith? Well, it probably means that person saw faith, either heard the gospel, saw other believers, they looked at it, and they wandered away from it because the money sucked them away. They probably never had that kind of saving faith. They never remembered the family of God. They wandered away from what they saw in the gospel. Psalm 52 also has something that is kind of relevant to this idea. It says that a man who trusted in his riches rather than in the Lord foolishly sought his refuge in a place of ultimate destruction. So he trusted in his riches. You can almost say that is another way of saying he loved them. And he ended up in a place of destruction. Is that talking about the ultimate saved or unsaved concept? Jesus said a few things that I think really uh, get more to the point without coming right out and saying it as directly as maybe we would like. I got two examples from Jesus' words. The first one I'm going to look at is Luke 16, where Jesus emphasized that a man who was unfaithful in managing righteous worldly wealth, such as the rich man in today's parable, would never be entrusted with true riches. So what is he referring to there? He's likely referring to this person not ever being entrusted with the spiritual truths or the heavenly treasures reserved for those who are going to join Jesus in the life to come. Second, and maybe even the clearest of all of Jesus' examples, go to Matthew 25, here we have the story of uh, Jesus separating, when he returns in his glory, separating the sheep from the goats, the sheep being the believers, the goats being the unbelievers. Here's what Jesus said to the goats, the unbelievers. You're probably all familiar with this, but it is directly relevant to this concept. 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment. As Jesus implies in this passage, and then as directly stated in a Hebrews 6 passage, where it says certain things accompany salvation, and God will not forget the work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people. So see the link we have here. We, it, the writer of Hebrews is showing a link between what should accompany salvation and our works of love by helping his people. Again, that relates back to what Jesus said as well. So to these pet truths that I'm passing on now, by diverting a little bit from the main point of the passage, mean that a person cannot be saved if he or she manages his material wealth selfishly? No, I can't say that with any certainty because we struggle. You know, we may bounce around on that issue in terms of how well we manage our wealth. So I can't say there is that link all the time with certainty. But God's word does teach us that our works of love and generosity provide evidence of the condition of our heart and what we truly believe about Jesus as our Lord and Savior. While this parable was not meant to teach us about salvation, I think we can infer from it that a person who selfishly hoards material blessings consistently all the time, that is the, what they live for, they may lack saving faith. So now let's turn to what it means to be rich towards God, because that's what Jesus said was what was wanted by God, by him, richness towards God. So what is it? The most straightforward answer to this is simply to give generously, cheerfully towards the word of God, work of God and be willing to sacrifice a little along the way. First, this is only possible I have three things that I'm going to mention that it's only possible to live that way, that general way, if these three things are true about you. For, and there's maybe other things, but here's three. First, it's only true if you have an eternal perspective, recognizing that our lives on this earth are very short compared to what follows. Second, it's only possible if we have a thankful attitude for the blessings we've received from God, materially and spiritually, including the infinite value of, our, uh, value of our salvation. And why is it infinite? Why has our salvation got infinite value? Well, because we, our souls, will live infinitely, forever, eternally, never ending. There's an infinite goes with that. And lastly, we can only give generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially if we have love in our hearts for God and others. Eternal perspective, 
thankful, grateful heart and love in our heart for God and others. Without these three things, it'd be hard, probably impossible, to be rich towards God the way he would see richness. We can give generously. We can do that. But we could do it for the wrong reasons. We can do it under compulsion, out of pride, to gain worldly rewards, which may include praise from men. But that would not be considered richness for God without grateful, loving hearts. It would be incomplete. Another general principle regarding richness towards God relates to the concept of first fruits. Now, some of you may say, first fruits, oh, that's an Old Testament command, law. It's part of Jewish law. And it's no longer relevant to us. It's been fulfilled by Jesus, all that law. No longer relevant to the church. But there are some principles behind first fruits that I would say are relevant. Technically, it may not apply any longer the way it did under the Jewish law. But when a person gives first fruits of what has been harvested or what you have earned money-wise, he's acknowledging that all that you have gained is a gift of God, and, and even more, that God is the owner of all those things. So, furthermore, this first fruit concept does express thankfulness, and it does demonstrate faith that God will continue to provide. First fruits means the first that you take in, whether it's a crop or something, you pull that off the top and you give it to God. That's acknowledging these things I just said. And it has behind it the faith that you have that you know he will continue to provide for you. And there's no indication in today's parable or the story of Fran and Joe that they were giving anything to God, first of all, or very little, whether it's first fruits or a tithe that may have followed, a tenth of, of what they may have gotten afterwards. Everything was earned for their own pleasure. Now let's get even more practical. What's it more practically mean? to be rich towards God. And I've got a few things that I can list here. It's not a comprehensive list, I'm sure. But first of all, it means using your wealth, your time, your talent. This isn't only about giving money. For the things that matter most to God. If you're good at music, I see Bill sitting in front here. He, he gives in a way that is different than just money, just like a lot of you do. You're a good teacher, you teach the kids. So just wanna emphasize, this is not only about money, it's about using the talents God has blessed you with for God and his work. That is also richness for him. And how do we know what other things it is that, uh, how we should use our time, talents, and treasure for God? Well. We have so many examples in the Bible, and I'm just going to pick a couple here. But if we read our Bibles thoroughly, we will know those things that please God, matter to him, and so by giving in those ways, you're showing richness for him. We have Jesus' example of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10. We're all familiar with this, where a, a, a man who was beaten on the trail was uh, helped and by a Samaritan and uh, to meet those needs. That's an example of being rich towards God. 
as we've already said, Matthew 25, Jesus gives a list of some of the things that show richness towards God. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison and who are sick. That is being rich towards God. And, and it can involve money. Like when he had the Good Samaritan, he used money and he, used his, he took his time, he did what was necessary. These things that Jesus listed may mean you need to spend some money, but it may need, it mean you need to spend some time. Being rich towards God means imitating him. This is a big one regarding his gift-giving nature. And that means even helping people who don't know God, who don't believe in him, who don't love him, who don't think biblically, who don't think like us. But to be like God, he, dis he bestows his blessings on even those who don't know him. And being like him would be doing the same. Being rich towards God means supporting local Christian ministries that provide essential services in our community, both financially and volunteering, including organizations like the Topeka Rescue Mission, Lifeline Children's Services, Caring Pregnancy Options, Doxazo, ministries that we pray for regularly here. Being rich towards God means using our resources and time to help our neighbors and others who are in need and spending less time and money on what we would prefer with respect to our own pleasure. Finally, being rich towards God is generously supporting our local church and other ministries that are proclaiming the gospel, that are equipping the body of Christ, that are discipling people to follow Christ. And at this point, I'm gonna just say, our church is a very generous church supporting the local body and we, have, uh, are, we are thankful for all of you being so generous in that way. So, as I've already discussed, some savings is wise, but it, would, it should never be used as an excuse to not give. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you have to choose between giving or saving for whatever you're saving for, whether it's just your IRA or whatever, you should choose to give when you've got to make the choice. Nowhere in scripture are people rebuked for giving too much, but they are rebuked for saving too much, as in this parable. So, if you are in that position, uh, first let me just say, Jesus also gave us the example of the poor widow lady who gave a few pennies. She gave even beyond her means. So giving even that way, some would say, well, that's foolishness. That person doesn't have anything, and yet they're giving it away to the church. I'm going to just say I have heard a wife criticize a husband for giving to the church when their family needs were not being met, as perceived by the wife. I don't know if any of you ever heard anything like that, but that's that's goes on. These are church-going people who who choose to meet their own needs or to save for what they want rather than give. Jesus would say it's better to give when you're placed in that predicament.
So what are the reasons why people are not rich towards God? Why people hoard their wealth? Why do they make choices like Joe and Fran rather than choose to be rich towards God? Well, there are many reasons. We've already talked about unbelievers who foolishly say there is no God, and we've already said enough about them. It's what we would expect from them. We would not expect an unbeliever to be rich towards God because they don't believe God exists. It's foolishness to them. There are many others who love money, and, and that could include Christians, but probably not. A Christian may have a struggle in their life with whether they love money. At times, it appears as though they may love money enough that it impacts their willingness to give. But those who fall in this category are generally not Christian. Jesus did say that a person cannot serve two masters. The money, if the money is the master, cannot also serve the Lord. Many hoard wealth out of fear, and this is where Christians probably come into play more than any other reason. The times we live in are turbulent, and uh, false teachers promote irrational fear and encourage hoarding beyond what is prudent, beyond that prudent savings that we said. Am, am I saying we shouldn't save anything because it looks like we may have special needs coming up? No. But if we devote so much time and attention and resources to that hoarding, I would say that has taken it a step too far. This hoarding out of this fear or anxiousness as I say, does include probably some Christians, but it may involve a lack of faith or a weak faith in God. Jesus said, do not be anxious about what your life, about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But our heavenly Father knows that you need them but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, weak faith can result in this kind of behavior. And then there's some people who may or may not be Christians who are just so focused on earthly cares, goals, pleasures, the busyness of life, that there's little or no time or even mental energy left to think about eternal things. Daily life just overwhelms the way people think, and it dictates priority setting. Eternal treasures are so vague and intangible that some people find it hard to want to make major now-type decisions that would be sacrificing what I can grab and put my hand around versus what is somewhere off in, the, in my eternal future. So what are the bigger bar biggest barns we're building related to this concept of reasons to not uh, give richly to God? Again, our fears of the economic crisis can cause us to invest these large sums on prepping. Some of us may be like Joe and Fran, who so much look forward to a retirement home, a large IRA, that little is just left to support the work of God. 
Others may simply just be so into their me-centered lifestyle that uh, it's always wanting something bigger or better to bring more pleasure or prestige, like a nicer car, bigger house, more fancy electronic devices, whatever that may be. So, what do we got to do? We got to right-size our barns. And that means a proper balancing of meeting those needs that we have, daily needs, and that in can include some enjoyment. It doesn't mean we can't spend anything to have fun. Not at all. But we need to balance those daily needs with giving and saving. And that is something that, um, if you haven't done it, I just recommend that you give consideration to doing that. We all are someday going to be like the rich man who dies. We don't know when that's going to be. It could be sooner rather than later. And we can't take our hoarded wealth with us. You may have heard this saying, and this was someone said, I never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul to the cemetery. Meaning, uh, again, we can't take it with us. So, Jesus told us we can't take our earthly treasures with us to heaven, but he told us we can lay up treasures in heaven. We can send treasure ahead of us Waiting, and that's not going to be money bags, piles of gold, whatever it is that you've accumulated. We won't need those things in heaven. Heavenly treasures primarily relate to the people whom we have invested in and somehow made a difference in their lives and maybe even been influential in, the in them being saved and joining us in heaven for all eternity. A few final thoughts to remember. Proverbs 19.17 says, When we show generosity to the poor and help the needy, we lend to the Lord. That is what being rich toward God is. Showing generosity to the poor and the needy, and in doing so, we lend to the Lord. The Lord blesses us, so we will bless others. And that includes blessings materially, emotionally, spiritually. He blesses us so we can turn around and bless others. A person is not rich who is not rich toward God is a fool. Coming back to that point, Jesus' words. Every person's going to stand before Jesus at some point after death. Those who have been rich towards God will hear these words. Come, you are blessed, who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That are, those are the words Jesus spoke after he talked about doing these things for the least of these. To those who lived only for their own pleasure, he will say, from that same passage in Scripture, Matthew 25, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Finally, 
as nice as our earthly home may be, as much as we enjoy what we have been blessed with, this is not our permanent home. In Hebrews we read, we have a better home, an abiding home in heaven. That is where our citizenship lies. That's what we need to remember as we strive to live richly towards God. I want to end with a quote from Randy Alcorn's book called The Treasure Principle, which is relevant to this whole thing. It's a, says, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to living is that, to giving, I'm sorry, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this, the illusion that earth is our home. Would you, uh, would the worship team please come up and would you please stand and read this passage with me as we close? Okay, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes,